Hey friend, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So you are in for a treat today. I have been waiting for this episode for several months. It's been on the calendar. I have been eagerly anticipating it and I am just fangirling out a tiny bit. So you guys know I've been getting deep, no pun intended, into soil health and information lately. You know, you come into this world of homesteading for the vegetables and the harvest, but then at least for me, I got into that deeper world the longer I progressed into this idea of homesteading. And so a big piece of that is starting to really understand what my soil is doing, how it's affecting the food I am um, growing, and also how I can just care for it and nurture it, which I really believe is our role as homesteaders and gardeners. So I've been waiting to find the right experts to have on to discuss this with us, and I have them, and they are with us today. And they are amazing. So they are the author of one of my favorite reads of the last year, What Your Food Ate. And David Montgomery and Anne Bickley are masterful at explaining these topics in a way that is very accessible and really honestly quite inspiring. So just to give you a little background on them, David Montgomery is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's an internationally recognized geologist who studies the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. And Anne Bickley is a science writer and public speaker focusing on the connections between people, plants, food, health, and the environment. She has been known to coax garden plants into rambunctious growth and nurse them back from the edge of death with her regenerative gardening practices. They are the authors of a number of different books. I recommend all of them. And they are a wealth of information. So go grab your pen and paper, or at the very least, plan to listen to this episode more than once because it is that good. So before we dive into the interview, I do want to thank today's sponsor, which actually happens to go with this theme of soil very well. Redmond Agriculture is helping me out with this episode today, and I am in love with them because they solved a major problem for homesteaders like you and I, which is soil testing. Traditionally, it's been kind of a pain to get your soil tested. You either had to have someone come out and do it, or you had to find a university who was local to you, or you had to go dive into the recesses of the internet to figure out where to mail it in. They solved that once and for all with their at-home soil testing kits. And so you may remember I played around with those last year when I had my herbicide drama and my potting soil drama. And They are so simple to use, so intuitive, and really informative. So if you're looking at trying to understand what's going on in your garden, maybe your yields aren't as good or your crops aren't doing quite right, you just want to see how you can nurture things more effectively, their kits are an easy and extremely inexpensive way to do that. So you can head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash soil test and use the code homestead for 15% off. You can test your soil now. You can do it later in the summer or the fall. There's really no wrong time to do it. And it's just going to arm you with data so you can start helping your soil and your garden even more. So now let's get into the episode. David and Anne, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited for this conversation. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So before we hit record, I was telling you how much I loved your, I believe it's your most recent book. Is that correct? You have a number of them, What Your Food Ate. Um, it's, I know it's backwards for those of you watching on video, but if you follow me on Instagram, anyone who's over there knows that I've been talking about this quite a bit and recommending it. They're like, what are you reading, Jill? And I'm like, this one, go get this one. It's so good. Um, and I am so excited to be able to have you on today and, and dive in a little deeper into this topic of soil. 
Well, thanks. We're happy to talk about it. We've had a, a, a long journey sort of coming to where we are in that book, and I can't help but love that you love it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I think my journey mirrors a lot of homesteaders is that we come to homesteading or old-fashioned living for the food, the vegetables, the plants, and then maybe over the course of years and trial and error, we start to become more interested in what's going on underneath. And so, my goal today as, as we chat is I'm hoping that um, for those who are, whether they're new in their journey or they're experienced in their journey, that we can kind of help them understand how amazing the soil is and how important it is to what we're growing, even as home gardeners and home growers. Like it's really something that we should all be paying attention to. So What Your Food Ate did such a beautiful job of explaining that. And there was some concepts that I had been aware of before I read the book, but you guys brought the data and you brought the meat to the conversation of why that's the case. And so I think it's really needed and it's such an important conversation. But before we get into some of that, I want to actually refer to another book of yours, Dirt, (laughs) (laughs) The Erosion of Civilizations. I have not read it, but it's in my to-be-read pile. And I actually was hoping you could kind of help me cheat a little bit. I I know I'm going to get all the info when I read it, but I wanted to ask you kind of to set the stage for this conversation. Um, I know this is about previous civilizations before ours that didn't understand the importance of soil. Is that a fair summation of the book? Yeah. The the one sentence summation I like to offer as the Cliff Notes version of the book is societies that did not take care of their land did not last. Yes. It's kind of that simple. So could you maybe whet our appetites a little bit? What are, what are some of the most notable societies um, from history that, what are, that, that, made, that, that missed that warning sign? Yeah. And what are the biggest takeaways that we can learn from them? I know it's a whole book, but if you could give us uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, we can do, we can do the, the, su- the super executive summary version. Um, Perfect. You know, there's, if you look back at the, the role of agriculture in particular in degrading land around the world, you can trace it back to ancient Sumeria, to sort of the, in the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent that's not so fertile anymore. Um, there was the story of classical Greece civilization, the Roman civilization, um, parts of Western Europe, the American Southeast, Angkor Wat, the earliest Chinese uh, agriculture and their, their early agricultural um, uh, efforts. It's, it's just a pattern that repeated society after society around the world that, that practices that degraded the soil through either the loss of the soil itself through soil erosion or through the other part of soil degradation, which is loss of soil organic matter, which, as we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a lot more, really undermines the, the fertility of the land and its ability to provide nutrients to crops we grow. But societies that degraded their soil over, from, from generations of farming practices gradually pulled the rug out from under their, own, their ability to feed their own populace. So it, particularly if you look at the story of Western civilization, of moving from the Middle East into Greece and Italy and then up into Europe and then over to um, North America, it's a story of, of degrading land and then moving on to new lands to degrade. And I think that the, the real relevance of Dirt today, the, Dirt the book today, uh, is that we're out of new places to go. Um, you know, if we de- we're working on a, on global soil degradation at this point, and there's no way we're going to go to Mars and farm it. Um, there's a whole lot of problems with that as a strategy. Uh, so we're at a point in our history where we have to learn the lessons from the past that those ancient societies really offer up to us if we're to avoid a similar kind of reckoning down the road globally with our agricultural production. So, and, and Dirt was the book that got Anne and I started on this road of, of looking into not only how societies have degraded their land, 
but how we can prevent doing it and how we can restore fertility to the land and all the benefits that would flow to us as a society. And as it turns out, as we wrote about in the new book, What Your Food Ate, uh, that could flow to us as individuals in terms of our own health. Um, and it's been a very interesting uh, journey going along. And Anne is the biologist half of the team. Uh, I'm the geologist half of the team. And it really took both perspectives to put the full story together that I'm sure we'll go dive deeper into as we go. Yeah, I think that was so powerful to have both of those angles coming um, in the books. That's special. So I, I think the reason this book caught my attention, why I bought it, is I, I, I often think of soil degradation as such a modern problem, you know, with our tractors and our tillers and our glyphosate and all of this. But obviously, this has been going on a long time. So what were some of the big mistakes that these cultures made, or at least, in, you know, kind of from a bird's eye view, that yeah. they didn't have the tractors and the, and the Roundup. So what were they doing that caused so much damage? Yeah, and it was all organic agriculture, right? I mean, the Romans right. did not have Monsanto to help them out. Um, right. But, you know, today we have technologies that allow us to degrade soil faster than ever if we ignore the lessons of history. But one of the key ones that's kind of counterintuitive that comes from the story of past societies is the disruptive nature of tillage, of plowing, of disturbing the soil. And it took uh, Anne and I another couple books to really sort of dive deeply enough into that to fully appreciate the why behind that. But the but the trajectory through history is pretty clear that societies that you know, plowed their land too frequently, too often for too long, um, degraded the soil through both soil erosion and loss of soil organic matter. And that was one of the really big takeaways from from writing dirt um, was how powerful the the slow loss of soil can be if it adds up over time. And so why is plowing something that can degrade the soil if it's done too often, too regularly? How many places have you ever been out in a natural grassland or a forest where you see bare earth at the surface? Nature clothes herself in plants, and that helps keep the soil on the land. It also supports all the life underground that I'm sure we'll be talking about that, yeah. that is really critically important for, for fertility. And tillage disrupts uh, the ground surface it makes it vulnerable to erosion by wind or, or rain, and it disrupts the microbial connections that the plants establish with life in the soil, um, particularly with with fungi in the soil. Um, if you take a, a, a plow across a field, you're literally plowing someone's home up. Uh, that someone though is invisible and microscopic and tiny, but it turns out to have huge importance in terms of, of fertility and the life of the soil and what we can get for agri from agriculture and sustain for a long time. The problem, of course, with that kind of degradation is that it happens slowly. And slow things are things that we're not very good at deeming crises. Um, so there's, there were people who recognized the problems with soil degradation in the past, but it's been very difficult to actually motivate you know, broad changes in practices for a practice that, you know, if you lose a millimeter or two of soil a year, you're not going to notice it in any given year as a farmer. But you look back over 20 years and you've lost an inch of soil. And most farms around the world have no more than 6 to 12 inches of soil on them. That means that we can degrade land over, you know, over centuries in ways that it took out past societies or helped to undermine past societies. We can do it all a lot faster now. But we can also fix it faster now. So, you know, there, there's things that we can do to actually enhance and improve our soils while growing a lot of food. Um, but that's something that Anne and I you know, worked on through the course of the series of books that culminated in What Your Food Ate, which is kind of a capstone that helps fill in that backstory and, and all those wonderful connections between the, the world of geology and biology 
farmers and eaters. Yeah. I love and that. I, I, I just have to share this story. I was at a garden, local garden club last week. Somebody had previously gardened in um, South Carolina and we were talking about soil. And she said, you know, it was really strange. I, I never used a shovel. I had to use a pickaxe <laughs> to do my gardening to break up the soil. And it, what Dave writes about in Dirt is that in the Southeast, that was one of the first places that, you know, settlers landed and they went, they burned through their topsoil. And so here, you know, several hundred years later, there's this gardener. And I don't think she even quite realized that pickaxing was not a normal way to be, you know, trying to grow yeah. plants. But she said everywhere that's what people were doing because the topsoil had been eroded away. And so, yeah, if there's anybody out there who's pickaxing their, you know, as a regular gardening method, just know it, it wasn't always like that, but it is also possible to start bringing soil back to life and, um, and so forth. So. Yeah, I think it's such an important, I think it's just so important to bring awareness to this, which you guys are obviously doing such an amazing job at just because I think people think so many things are normal that aren't normal. Um, right. You know, right. yeah, like the pickaxe, that's not normal. <laughs> but we but your friends are doing it. So I guess all God's children use pickaxes in the garden. So <laughs> um, I mean, even just shifting my own perspective, I grew up and my dad always tilled. He was very, he's very conventionally minded, loves his roundup, loves his chemicals. And so he always tilled. And so I was almost like my eye was trained to think a tilled garden is a beautiful garden that, you know, get that soil, till it up, make it crumbly, make it loose. And then as I started learning more, I'm like, ooh, that's not like my eyes were like, that's not a good thing. I almost had to recalibrate my perspective. And, and now it's like, ooh, that's actually soil that's like, help, help. <laughs> like, I don't want, I don't want to do this. Um, but it's just what we consider normal is, is powerful in our culture. Oh yeah, yeah, it truly is, and you know, and the one of the goals of of uh, the style of either gardening or farming that can help rebuild soil fertility is to minimize disturbance of the soil. Because once you think about the life in the soil as your partner, as a farmer or gardener, yeah, you you want to take care of it. You want to you know, cultivate it in the positive sense of, of of all the positive senses of that word word. And so if we disturb the soil, whether through the use of too many agrochemicals or too much physical disturbance, which is where the plowing or tillage comes in, it can really disrupt that life in the soil. And so it's not so much that we should never till or that we might never use a chemical, but absolutely trying to minimize their use is in the best interest of, of the soil, the life in the soil, and ultimately the farmer and consumers down the road. Yeah. Could you paint a little bit of that picture? I know it's a really, that's a big question of, but like, what are we partnering with in the soil? Can you, if someone's never thought about this, what are some of the, the organisms and the microbes and just all the systems that maybe they have never considered or are working under there in, in a healthy patch of ground? Yeah. So we probably all had the experience of, uh, as we are digging around in the soil, because it's somehow we have these, you know, supposable thumb thing going on. We can pick up tools or we can sit in a tractor. Um, you invariably run into things that you can see. And of course, the most obvious example of that is earthworms. You're digging around, you find these earthworms. Um, but they're just, you know, the tip of the proverbial iceberg. You know, these are the bigger things that we can see. 
And when you consider sort of this whole collection of soil life, uh, one piece that has been, you know, not in our minds enough has been all of the things that are invisible to the naked eye. And so this, of course, has the sort of the collective term for that is the microbiome. And there's been a lot recently out on the human microbiome because we have microbial communities that live in us and on us. And it turns out every life form on the planet has a microbiome, but not just life forms, the soil or the ocean, let's say. They have their own unique particular microbiome. And in the soil, where that microbiome is um, most dense, most diverse, most active is in this sort of very narrow zone around the root system of a plant. And that that area is like maybe a nanometer, maybe up to a couple of millimeters wide. And and it's where all of the microbes that are a part of the this sort of it, it sort of crosses over. You can't quite say well, what's the plant microbiome versus what's the soil microbiome in that halo-like zone? But what we do know is that it's chock full of um, the major kinds of microbes that probably most listeners have heard of. They may be intimately familiar with some of them, depending on you know how, how far down they go the rabbit hole on this. But there's bacteria. Dave had mentioned fungi. And what's interesting is there's there's in all of these groups, there are um, a lot of different types. And when it comes to fungi, there's the mycorrhizal fungi, which glom onto and in some cases grow inside of a plant's roots with one end of, of their body. And the other end of their body is can be, you know, kilometers to meters away from the plant itself, way out of the reach of the roots. So that's that's one kind of fungi. There's another kind of fungi, and that is what is part of the decomposition <clears throat> of organic matter in the soil. So I have used a lot of mulches, a lot of wood chips and fallen leaves and things like that. And that's where you, I, I want the fungi that are part of breaking down all that organic matter and making nutrients accessible to plants. That's, that's another really important group. There's also, of all things, um, viruses, right? <laughs> viruses are also doing things. They're um, a part of every microbiome. And then there's protozoans and, and things like that. So what we know about the microbial communities is they congregate. It's like, you know, Grand Central Station or, um, you know, some some giant New Year's Eve event that you have going on around the root system of a plant. And the reason for that is, is pretty simple and it makes a lot of sense. Plants are forming compounds through their power of photosynthesis, all kinds of compounds, stuff loaded with nutrients, um, phytochemicals, which are a particular kind of thing that only plants can make. And they push these compounds out. Think of it sort of like um, cocktails or the things you'd find in a picnic basket or something like that. They push these out into the soil from their roots and the microbes are coming, running to all this free stuff to consume it. And this is how the microbes are surviving and in fact thriving down there in the soil. And 
this is one of the grandest symbioses that we know about on the planet. So symbiotic relationship, that's just where both both parties, both entities are benefiting from that relationship. And another symbiotic relationship that probably I'm sure everybody's familiar with who's listened to your podcast, we don't talk about it this way, but um, pollinators and plants, that's another kind of symbiotic relationship. Everybody's benefiting there. But the one that's happening below the ground in the soil between plants and their microbiome, that predates all of this flower and insect bird and and flower pollination stuff by um, millions of years. And so this is this is not only sort of running the botanical world uh, as as a whole, but it's been there for a long, long, long time. So it has a good track record. It's time tested. And kind of miraculously, we don't really need any new technology to utilize this. Dave had mentioned before earlier, oh, caring. What if you cared for the life of the soil? That's about as technical a, a, a piece as you're going to bring to this. It's not, it's, as he said too, I thought that was great. You just want to make sure you're not plowing up or digging up somebody's home. Because there's a lot of things that live down there in the soil. And you want them, you certainly want them on your side and you want to be able to work with them. Do you want to add in what those organisms do for the plants? That would be great. Yeah. Oh, she might be frozen. Oh, I think, I think Uh-oh. she's frozen. I guess we'll maybe I'll fill that in. Um, okay. That works. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of that life in the soil are doing things. They're, 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 uh, feasting on those exudates because the plant's putting out essentially free food for them into the soil. And what the microbes do uh, is they consume those exudates and it's what they produce with them or what they then do with their, with their, with their lives around the soil that helps to deliver things like mineral elements to the plants or uh, to stimulate the plants to make what are known as phytochemicals, chemicals that are, you know, phytochemical plant-made chemical. Um, And those phytochemicals, once they get into that serve purposes for the plants in terms of communication, in terms of defense, um, but they also, once they get into our diet, they are things that we might know by the name of antioxidant or anti-inflammatories. They have properties that are beneficial to our health. And so that basically what we're seeing is that the, um, the relationships between the life and the soil um, and, and their host organisms, if you will, are two-way streets where the, the soil um, life is doing things that help to provision, help to either uh, tee up the defenses of their plant hosts or to help them obtain uh, nutrients, mineral micronutrients in particular, um, things like uh, phosphorus. Uh, fungi will go out and with their hyphae that Anne was describing, will go out and mine phosphorus elements out of soil particles, come back and deliver them to plants. And phosphorus is one of the things we know is a major fertilizer. So in a healthy, very naturally fertile soil, it's the life in the soil that are sort of acting as the miners and the truckers that are getting stuff out of the soil and getting it to the to and into the plant, and they get paid in those those exudates in effect. And so that's how both parties are benefiting from from these relationships. And our style of conventional agriculture can undermine the, those relationships by either disturbing the habitat of those organisms or physically breaking the connections. Uh, on those those fungal hyphae, a plow will just slice right through them. 
And then it takes rebuilding them to reestablish those connections. It's like if somebody knocked down all the the freeway overpasses through a major city, you know, the movement of people and goods is going to crash to a halt. And if you think about that underground ecosystem in, in those kind of terms, what one can do to actually foster those beneficial relationships amounts to the, the care and feeding of the, micro, of the microorganisms in the soil. And so you want to minimize their disturbance. You want to basically feed them what they need. So having a lot of organic matter in the soil, because that's the currency that drives that underground economy. And you want a diversity of organisms because that gives you a, a diversity of players. If you look at, say, like a sports team, like a baseball team, for example, if everyone on that team was a catcher, you'd never make it to the World Series. You want different specialists playing different positions so that your team functions at a higher level. And when we think about soil ecology that way, in partnership with growing crops, it leads us to think very differently about how we treat the land than the way it has been in many ancient societies and the way we do conventionally today. But there's some ideas that have been around a long time that are fairly traditional that are really um, – well-oriented towards helping to build soil fertility. Things like cover crops, things like crop rotations, uh, planting legumes in the in one's rotation to get some nitrogen into the soil. These are not new ideas, um, but the idea of combining those kind of practices with minimizing the physical and chemical disturbance, that's a whole new way of looking at farming practices or gardening practices to promote and build soil health as the foundation for a healthy garden or a healthy and productive farm. Yeah, I think um, one of the realizations that a gardener or a farmer comes to, or at least I hope that they will, is that you go at this business of what, whether it's growing, you know, crops or your own home garden or ornamental plants, is you eventually come to realize that, wow, in some ways, what I'm really doing is growing soil life. Yeah, of course. There's the plants, but you begin to see these relationships and their importance. And you come to see, you come to look at organic matter in a whole new way. You come to look at um, what it is you're actually growing. And, and as soon as you come to that realization, I think that, you know, in some ways, really, you're, you're growing soil life. Once that basic process is in place, you figure it out. Your, your care strategy, your feeding strategy. Plants, the botanical world has been at this, this relationship for a long, long time. So you're really kind of setting plants up for success. That's how I think about it. Because I'm not a plant, even though I may think I am sometimes, or I, <laughs> I wish I was. Um, their biology has this handled. They know how to do it, but we just need to provide the right setting. I love that. Um, one of the, my big aha moments in your book is when you were talking about the combination of those practices. I believe the minimal till, the cover, and the mulch. Because I've dabbled in all those things, and I've heard people speak to them individually. But you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were kind of like, in your research, you discovered that that trio is really like the power play. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, that's exactly right. There's been a lot of academic studies of the individual effects of things like going to no-till farming, minimal physical disturbance on the amount of carbon or organic matter in the soil. And, you know, those studies are, uh, report a kind of a mixed bag. And there's a lot of studies of, of just of growing cover crops, most of which report in, uh, enhances in soil fertility and yields, 
um, but modest ones. And then there's studies that look at the diversity of crops as a way to build soil health. And there's not many studies that actually look at the combination of all three. But in researching this book we, and, and the previous book, um, we looked at what those uh, studies had found. And there's a very strong indication that it's adopting all three, the minimal disturbance, the cover crops, and the diversity that really play out as a recipe for rebuilding soil fertility pretty fast. And it actually kind of makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because, you know, what would you, how would you feel if somebody came around once a year, took the roof off your house, took a giant spoon and stirred up all your stuff? That's kind of what a plow does to the soil. And that's not a recipe for a stable, stable happy, um, uh, for fulfilling your potential at home. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, cover crops, that's a great way to get organic matter returned to the soil. Then, you know, if you're if you're farming and exporting some organic matter, you're going to be losing some. But if you have um, uh, cover crops, you're basically feeding the microbes in the soil. So you've got their housing and you've got their food. And then uh, in terms of a community, that's where the diversity comes in. Because if you're growing a diversity of crops, not necessarily at the same time, but in rotations could, can work, then you're basically going to have a diverse population of microbes in the soil because different microbes will associate with different plants. And that gives your plants a lot of potential allies to basically pick and choose from who they will collaborate with. And so that's a recipe for building those beneficial, mutually beneficial symbiotic relationships. It's also about the opposite of what we've taught in agriculture for about the last hundred years, where we've emphasized you know, routine mechanized tillage with, um, uh, with, with growing one or two crops in a rotation um, and, and relying on synthetic fertilizers for getting the equivalent of organic matter back into the soil. It actually degrades organic matter, but it helps to feed the microbes that then do the degradation. Um, so it's really that combination is a really powerfully different way of thinking about the soil as the foundation for farming. And what, what Ann and I have looked into now for um, over the course of several books is how modern science actually really supports that view as mediated through the microbial partnerships that it supports. Um, so it's basically, when you look at those three practices together, it's trying to put the, the science of ecology back into the biology of farming. Yeah. It's, it's powerful. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it makes sense. Also, it just mimics nature. Like if you just think yeah. of those three together, it's just, it's just nature. I mean, it's like right there, there it is. There's a, there's a formula. And she's a so. pretty good, she's a pretty good teacher. She's got hundreds of millions of years of experience on her side. Yep. Just got to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. That right, could be the hard part. Right, right, right. Yep. Yep. So, um, one of my, another revelation I had as I was reading your book, I loved the chapter rocks become you. And it was funny because I had these like, these ideas in my periphery, but you guys just brought it together. And it was like so many like, duh, why didn't I think of it like that? Um, where you're, you're like, you know, all this healthy soil life is literally taking the minerals and the rocks and the soil. And it's like that you're, I think you said the digestion happens outside of the plant in essence. And that's where we're, we're getting all the good stuff. Um, but then you go on to explain, I think, um, page 26, you said, uh, in a 2009 University of Texas study, there was a, there was strong evidence for five to forty percent declines in the mineral content of fruit and vegetables over the previous half century. Um, and I've heard people talk about you know like our food isn't as nutritious as it used to be, and I'm like, but who's quantifying that? And I'm like, oh, there it is, it's quantified. <laughs> so, um, what does that look like in terms of the effect on our bodies? Like, if people, you know, we we hear all all the time. 
follow the food pyramid, get your fruits and veggies, colorful plates. But like people are thinking they're eating healthy, but are they're not getting as much as they they think, presumably. Right. And it's a, there's so many things um, that affect the way that say minerals move into a plant because you have sort of the native soil and, and what form are these um, things like uh, iron or zinc or boron or things like that? What, what form are they sitting in, in the soil? And so they can be in adequate amounts of the soil, but if you've been sort of chiseling away at your soil life, it's almost like, you know, all that stuff can get sort of on the microbial ship and it can pull right up to the rhizosphere, that root area, but then it's left high and dry, right? There's, there's not the, there's not the actual delivery of it, or maybe that ship only makes it halfway you know, to port to the root system. And um, part of the difficulty um, that we ran into in the book is just how variable uh, soils are and just how variable all of these different microbial routes and pathways and mechanisms are for getting uh, these, these various minerals into food. But at the same time, of course, the health world has all of these standards for nutritional deficiencies, and they can be, you know, stuff for calcium, magnesium. So whenever you read a nutrition label, you're like, oh, I'm supposed to have, you know, about X milligrams of this thing in my daily diet. And there are some, you know, probably the most well-known example of a deficiency is vitamin C. That's what all of these sailors got that were, you know, out at sea um, hundreds of years ago. They had no vitamin C and they got scurvy. And then miraculously, they start eating citrus when they get a hold of that again. And, you know, within a very short time that the symptoms of scurvy clear up. So what's happening is, you know, one deficiency is probably interacting with other things going in and going on in our bodies. And we don't, we don't always know, Oh, this thing's having an effect because it may not manifest that day, that month, it might manifest um, even years later, but suffice it to say that we do know uh, that when you're, when you're um, eating a diet that might not have the kind of deficiency that, created scurvy, but it is a deficiency that's a minor amount, you do that maybe for a day or a week or a month, it's really no big deal. You do that over decades of a lifetime. And this is some research that we go into in some of the later chapters of the book. Uh, You do that over a lifetime, and then your body starts to falter. And so that's the concern with that stat that you read at the beginning is, all right, if these declines were picked up, some time ago, there's a good chance that many of us uh, have been eating sort of at least mineral, various mineral deficient types of diets since then. And we just, we, we start to falter, you know, there's probably, there's a number of conditions that can be linked to these different um, mineral deficiencies, but it sort of even goes beyond that too. In some cases, there's not so much a deficiency as an imbalance. And that's the story when it comes to omega-6 and omega-3 fats, for example. So it's 
there are really intimate and there are really intricate uh, connections between how farming methods influence what gets into our food and then what effects that has on our body and over what time frame those effects manifest. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, which is the only salt I use for all my homestead cooking, canning, fermentation, and it's also the salt of our soda fountain restaurant. Since I can't grow salt myself, you know, obviously, I got to buy it somewhere, and I've learned that not all salt is created equal. Having the good stuff makes a really big difference in what you're cooking, and it does affect the flavor. I have loved Redmond for years because they mine their salt here in the United States, they use sustainable practices, and it contains over 60 different trace minerals that not only make it taste really good, it's also better for you too. Now, I admit I am a complete salt nerd, so I buy mine in bulk, which just makes sense because it saves me a lot of money and salt doesn't go bad, so you can stash it in your pantry for a very long time. So if you want to give Redmond's a try, whether you're buying a shaker to test drive or you want to do a 25-pound bag like I do, head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt. And don't forget to use code HOMESTEAD to save 15% off. Now back to our episode. So if someone's a home gardener and they're listening and they're thinking, I'm putting all this effort into growing food at my house, so I want to make sure that what I'm harvesting is maximum nutrition for all this effort. What would be, I mean, I mean, I think it's probably back to that trio we talked about, but what would be your, your biggest bang for your buck that you would recommend to start getting that nutrition and, and helping that soil, um, making yeah. their food good for them? Right. Soil health, soil health, soil health. And, <laughs> and those practices that Dave described, the three, they, they totally relate to the housing, the food, and the community of the soil and the plant microbiome. Because once you set that that process up where you're you're cycling nutrients from organic matter, whether it's mulches or exudates, microbes are happy. Microbes are thriving. Uh, all of their delivery services, all of their um, other kinds of services, which is you know actually signaling compounds that might tell a plant, oh, we've got a pathogen approaching. And so it's time to gin up phytochemicals before that insect herbivore hops on your leaf and starts to eat you. And so you you want this communication uh, between plants and microbiome, plant to plant, to be as robust and strong and functional as possible, because that's what will give you the best chance of suffusing your veggies or fruits or even animals when it comes to that end of things, suffusing them with the nutrients and the compounds and phytochemicals and microbial metabolites that end up in the plant body that then end up in the human body. So it's, it's really, you know, it's really the setup. I can't emphasize that enough. And, um, the other, the other thing is that I think to grow a diversity and to eat a diversity of crops, because there's things that are well known to be um, high in beta carotene, like squashes. Okay, great. Squashes for your beta carotene. If you're in a place where you can grow berries, oh, okay, berries, those are, those are good for your anthocyanins. And so there's these different 
nutritional packages that come along with these different fruits and vegetables. And so if you eat across these, you know, all of these different things from leafy greens to something like a squash, you're providing your own gut microbiome with a diverse diet. And they're doing much the same thing in our gut as the microbiomes are doing, the plant microbiome is doing in the soil, which is to say, oh, you sort of have your onboard, your onboard health plan happening, your internal pharmacist that is preventing the onset of problems, that's maybe dealing with things that um, you're not even quite aware of, but you want your microbiome and you want the soil microbiome on top of those problems and challenges before they ever, ever get out of hand. So that's why I say, you know, eventually you come around to realizing, I guess, I know I realize I'm growing carrots and I want them in my salad, but I'm really growing soil life because they're the key to getting all of these nutrients into your carrots that you want on your dinner table. It's just that holistic idea coming back around. You know, we're so, I feel like in our Western world, especially we're so reductionist in terms of we get focused on the one thing, just the carrot. I want the better carrot. And we have to just always, so much of homesteading for me, whether it's been the animals or the crops or the food, it's just like, nope, step back, look at the big picture. The answer is almost always in the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and, um, some people will say, well, I'm not really sure I like vegetables or is it really, you know, all that valuable that we also go over some research in the book that shows that we come up with these things. We call them the fab four. And these are the things particularly relevant to crops, but there's an animal thing in there too. And so it's our phytochemicals, um, micronutrients, a fat balance and microbial metabolites. So those four categories of things we know that when soil is healthy, those four types of things are entering the plant body that is the crop that's going to become our food. And each of those things, each of those groups of things has really different functionality in the human body. So that's why you want to eat sort of the, the diversity of foods out there, because some things are, say, really good for cognition and um, regular neurologic activity. Other things are really good just for your basic metabolism, right? We want our blood sugar to be at an optimal level. So that's, that's why you're sort of eating among all these different things, because each has a strength, you know, back to Dave's baseball team yeah. <laughs> analogy. Phytochemicals do really, really different things than, say, you know, a balance, uh, a balance of fats. You know, some things are super, you know, on the fix it, you know, let's put it this way. Some things are like, you know, the hammer in your toolbox, the screwdriver in your toolbox, but you put them all together and what you're really bringing into your body is a whole entire hardware store. Mm, I like that. Okay. So you've got, your body's got everything it needs to deal with whatever you know, might be happening with uh, any sort any sort of health. And, and one of the reasons we call those uh, four the Fab Four the the mineral micronutrients, the uh, microbial metabolites, um, uh, the fat profile, and phytochemicals are those are all those are the things that agricultural practices very directly influence. So there's mm. there's strong scientific evidence that the way that we farm will influence how much of those things get into our food. When we get into looking at many of the major elements, you know, the things we need to bulk up and build our bodies, 
the evidence is not anywhere near as clear as it is in those in those Fab Four in terms of the differences in farming practices, and that might make some sense. I mean, you think about what sets the chemistry of a tomato. A lot of it's the tomato genetics and just what it does to put itself together. But whether it has a lot of minerals in it, uh, mineral micronutrients, whether it has much lycopene in it, um, a, a very favorable phytochemical for human health, it's very much dependent on how it's actually raised. And that's where the title of the book, What Your Food Ate, came, comes from, is thinking about, you know, we don't tend to think about our crops as having a diet. But what we yeah. feed the soil really is the diet for our crops. And when we look at our livestock, you know, what are the crops they're eating and how were they raised control what gets into their bodies, which means that affects what's in the meat and milk that, that um, those of us who consume those products uh, will get into our bodies. And so you can kind of, we, we, you know, we all know that aphorism of, you know, you are what you eat. Um, famous, famous saying. Um, but we're trying in this book to push that back one step if not two steps further, to look at that whole chain of how things get eaten and consumed and passed on to another level in the food chain all the way up to us and how the way that we farm influences that and those that those Fab Four um, um, uh, things that Anne was introducing, those are all things that have been connected to human health outcomes. Yeah. Right. As random questions you were speaking to that um i hear a ton of people complain about how the food especially you know older folks the food i'm eating now doesn't taste like the food i ate when i was a kid you know and i know part of that's different you know different varieties and some's being transported long distance and so there's multiple factors there but could that also be if if we're lacking in those minerals and those nutrients in the vegetables and fruits that that's coming across in more bland flavor yes i'm so glad you brought that up because i was going to i was going to say let's not forget how flavor pro, how the flavor profile links to the nutritional mm. profile. And um, we go over some research in the book that is actually, in fact, on tomatoes. And there's a cultivar, uh, tomato cultivar in Florida created in the 1970s called the Floridade. Well, people don't like the way the Floridade tastes. It's not that it tastes awful. It's that it lacks It doesn't flavor. taste. And doesn't so these taste. researchers are wondering... Well, let's do a tomato preference test. We have the Floridade, and then we have this other cultivar that's uh, that's that's closer ancestrally to tomato, a, a tomato species out of South America that's used in a lot of breeding. So they they put the they run these two tomatoes one against the other. People are like, the Floridade is bad, really bad. We don't like that. So the researchers are like, why? So they did an analysis and come to learn that what is responsible for the flavor profile in the non-floridade tomato is a particular package of things that just happen to be essential and critical for human health. And there's a little bit of overlap with what we call our Fab Four. So these tomatoes that people give the thumbs up to oh, they've got uh, these particular kind of carotenoids that are linked to sort of clean, clean up and fix it functions in the human body. These tomatoes actually contain uh, omega-3 fats. Oh, huge functionality in um, the immune response. The, these tomatoes also um, contain 
amino acids that happen to be what are called essential amino acids. And so these are the type of amino acids build proteins. And there's some amino acids. We can eat a bunch of foods and our body has managed to figure out a way to put those together to create amino acids. An essential amino acid is one that our body lacks that ability. So the only place we get that amino acid is in the human diet. Mm. And this tomato that people prefer happens to have, I think it was, it was a couple of these essential amino acids. So this is where this concept of body wisdom comes in because our body, there's this feedback between what we eat and our behavior and the health of our cells and tissues. And when it's all lining up like it should, we, in a behavioral sense, this is why these people couldn't stand the Floridate. It tasted like crap yeah. and their body knew it. And when they were presented with that other one, they ate it. The feedbacks were immediate, right? I think I'll have another one of those and another one of those. And these feedbacks, they're not happening really at a conscious level in the same way that, say, when you eat a sugary thing, your brain, that hits the brain and the brain's like, I'd like more of that. And the hand, you know, okay, yeah. and it directs your hand to reach for more. A lot of this body wisdom stuff is happening at an unconscious level. It's feedbacks between gut and brain. And so this is where flavor profile, which is a kind of a complex mix of cultivar and farming methods, makes for a certain flavor profile that is feeding into body wisdom in a an accurate in an accurate way. I will say that the food industry also knows about body wisdom. They don't call it that, but they know how it works. Yeah. And so that's why all of those <laughs> That long list of unpronounceable things on a lot of ultra-processed foods are in there. It's interacting with our body wisdom, but not in a always desirable way. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of faking out our um, our body wisdom in terms of feeding us flavors that send our brain signals that we want more and this is great, but it doesn't actually have the nutritional value to back it up. Right. Yeah. I just finished reading, um, oh my God, I can't, I never get the name correct. It's salt, no, sugar, fat, salt by Michael Moss. Right, by Michael yeah. Moss, and I think. It's, or it's salt, fat, I don't know. It's those three words in some combination. Yeah, yeah, it's one. <laughs> and man, it was like, I, I, I knew the food industry was doing that, but it was, it's diabolical how much time and money they spend just dialing it down to the nth degree to make sure that we literally can't resist the potato chips or the candy bar. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Using our body wisdom mm -hmm. against us. Yeah. And it works. Right. It works, man. Right. So we, yeah. So for people who, you know, want to explore this body wisdom thing, if they get the book, there's, we have a little hack in there for how you can get back in touch with your body wisdom and begin to kind of practice using it uh, in real ways. Yes. Right. Like let's, let's put the fake stuff aside so that we can, um, be in touch with our real body wisdom and just understand a little bit, just be more aware of it. Yeah. Just be more aware of it. And, and then you can use it and you know that that's your buddy. Yes. And I think it's sometimes, at least for me, sometimes I think there's a detox period. If I'm eating a bunch of artificial things, like I get, I get muddy. I can't like get my own intuition is, is oh. silenced. And so I kind of have to like get, get that out of my diet, stop eating that. And then I come back into focus on what it's actually trying to tell me. I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That's called, in research, that's called the washout mm, period. Interesting. A week or two yep. of, of a reset. Yes. And it takes that long. And this is why, you know, it doesn't just like, I ate the potato chip yesterday, so it's probably out of my body now. 
No, your body is still working on getting that out. Yeah. Yeah. Take some time. Cleanse the palate and other things. So, yeah. (laughs) um, Oh my goodness. So good. So to shift gears a little bit, well, sort of your, your information on glyphosate was fascinating because I had always have heard people reference their concerns about it in terms of human health and human effects, which, you know, that's still on the table, but you guys were like, no, it's actually really damaging the microbes and the, the biome to the point where it's, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's damaging the ability for the plants to uptake the nutrients. And so I never thought of glyphosate having that effect. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that was one of the interesting things that we learned by researching a book like, like What's Your Food Ate? Um, the, most of the concern that people have expressed about glyphosate is over sort of potential to cause cancer in people and, and other sort of direct toxicity kind of results. And, you know, there's a, there's a big literature on that. There's a lot of controversy that people go either way. But when you look at what glyphosate was actually originally patented for, it opens up sort of a different avenue of thinking about it. It was originally patented as a mineral chelator. And what a mineral chelator is, is it's it's an organic compound that binds onto and ties down mineral elements. And so, um, and it was actually invented, uh, its first purpose was to clean uh, crud buildup out of metal pipes. Um, And it was apparently pretty good at that. (laughs) But the... um, uh, you know, it was also found to be a very good herbicide because, and in part because it shuts down, it, it shuts down pathways that help to get minerals into plants um, that they need to actually support their health. And so it's kind of like undoing, in a way, some of that work that the biology of the soil is doing to get mineral elements into plants. If they get, if those mineral elements get tied down and, and left it behind in the soil, then those deliveries never occur. They never get across the threshold into the plant. Um, but there was another uh, patent, the second patent on glyphosate was as an antibiotic. It's actually very effective as an antimicrobial agent. And mm-hmm. so there's been a, lot, a number of studies that have looked at the effect of glyphosate on um, soil life. And many of them have studied on whether it affects the total bacterial abundance in the soil. And it, it doesn't seem to, but what it is very clearly does is it changes the community composition of who's in the soil. So it's changing that community that the plant's putting all those exudates out to try and recruit very specific microbes to benefit its own health. And over-applications of glyphosate is sort of changing that community in a totally different direction in ways that don't necessarily benefit the plant. And there's a fair number of studies now on, on, I believe it was chickens, goats, and cows, if I'm remembering the animals right, European studies that have looked at the effects of glyphosate on the gut microbiome of animals that eat uh, crops that have been treated with glyphosate and that they've found sort of profound impacts on the uh, the gut health and the gut microbiota of those of those animals i don't know of any studies that have looked at that in people i think those studies are coming but the awareness of oh maybe there's a different way to think about what it is that glyphosate may be doing to in our in the the soil microbiome and then in our own microbiome it, it provides a different focus for thinking about uh, whether we should be concerned about its use in agriculture, which Anne and I think we should be, um, and to what we might do to try and wean ourselves off of it. And it turns out that there's very different methods of weed control that can go into regenerative, a regenerative style of farming that adopts those principles that we were talking about earlier in terms of the minimal disturbance, the cover crops, and the diversity. There's other technology and tools that one can use for alternative means of weed control. 
Um, and which, of course, is why glyphosate has been so widely adopted as this kind of the easy button for weed control. Yeah. But it appe- it's starting to appear like it came with a whole bunch of un- unacknowledged and unanticipated side effects for both the health of our crops and the health of our livestock and potentially uh, human health as well. Uh, and, you know, and, and, the, and the backstory there is kind of hidden in the first two patents for glyphosate. It's basically what it does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably, um, you know, pending more research, it's looking a lot like, you know, this is an example of how soil health ripples through to crops, to animals, to people. Because there we are altering the micro- soil microbiome and thereby the plant microbiome. And that's the beginning of this cascade that is not suffusing our crops with compounds, nutrients, and the, you know, the fab four like it should be. And, you know, there's one of, with regard to the antibiotic effects and what it's doing inside of our gut. So mitochondria, which are the little powerhouses in our body, which uh, basically are, are turning our food into energy long, 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 long ago, mitochondria were free living bacteria. So they're not really a human uh, derived sort of cell type. They were once bacteria. And so with glyphosate having antimicrobial, antibacterial action, and if we're eating food that has glyphosate, are we taking out, you know, a really fundamental piece of human biology or if, if not taking it out, impairing it? And once you get, you know, just like anything that needs energy with, you know, an electric vehicle, fossil fuel vehicle, whatever it is, a power plant, you take it out and things things can't run. That's, that's how fundamental it is. And I often think, you know, it just, I remember growing up and I just don't remember kids in my class, uh, for example, having all this gluten intolerance, whether it's fully diagnosed celiac or somewhere on that continuum. And glyphosate, I'm sure, you know, you, some of your listeners may know this, that glyphosate gets sprayed on wheat Mm -hmm. right before harvest. Um, to make it easier to harvest and it dries it out, but it's also getting glyphosate on the actual edible part of the wheat grain that gets milled and ground into flour. And then that becomes a pathway for eating glyphosate in the human diet. And so I keep wondering, is, is it really a gluten problem? Is it, is it, is there another G word at play here? You know, is it the glyphosate problem in our wheat supply, conventional wheat supply. Yeah. yeah I think that's I don't a, know. An, an excellent question. And yeah, just mind blowing. You know, I think like you said, the focus is often on just cancer or, you know, they're, they're like, wash the pesticide residue off your, your vegetables when you get them home from the store. And I'm like, but I think it's, there's a lot more going on, um, than what meets the eye. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think ending kind of here on a high note, one thing that, both Dave and I have encountered when it comes to soil health and ag is that I think because soil is such a dynamic living system in part because these microbes have such short generation times, it, it also means that healing it and helping soil recover its full functionality is something that is kind of a, a bit of a good news story when it comes to the environment. Mm. It's like, oh, 
you know, once we start doing these things, you know, caring for the microbes, protecting the microbes, giving them places to live, you can see a phenomenal turnaround on soil health. And, you know, in the transition period, we're not talking 20 years, we're talking several years. And, you know, farmers are, you know, folks who, who are looking at, you know, I want to kind of get away from the agrochemicals and the nitrogen fertilizer. I'm going to start with a small piece. And, you know, within three to five years, they're seeing big, big results. And some people say, oh, that's, I can't wait that long. And then, and then my response is three to five years. Are you kidding me? There's nothing that heals overnight. Right. Right? right. Anybody who's made any kind of change or is recuperating from any kind of health challenge. Did you hop out of your hospital bed, you know, on day two of, of whatever? No, it can take months or years even for human health to recover. So I think if we can turn the soil around, um, in, you know, less, you know, certainly five, less than five years, that's really hopeful. And we don't need new products. We don't need new technology. We just need different practices and methods and adapting these three broad principles that relate to disturbance and organic matter, just adapting those to local conditions yeah. and using, you know, up here. Yes. Yeah. And that is such a hopeful story. And it's, like you said, you don't have to go buy anything fancy. You don't have to go buy the, the brand new one, two, three system. It's just go back to the basics, go get your clues from nature. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. So to kind of bring it back full circle, I'm thinking, I'm still thinking of our pick, our pickaxe friend. And let's say, I have some pickaxe friends listening to this podcast right now and they're going, that's me. And you know, we're gear for most of the country, we're gearing up into the garden season. If we haven't already started, what would you tell them? What can they do now with that compacted, hard, damaged soil to help it? Yeah. I think the first thing that anyone is in, who's in that situation needs to think about is trying to get more life, more micro, more like, you know, from scale of earthworm down to microbe, you want to get more of that, uh, into your situation because all of that biological activity is going to start breaking down minerals, creating pores and channels and, and conduits for more soil life. And the way you do that is I would start bringing mulch materials like nobody's business back onto my site. So wood chips are great because they support fungi, living leafy material. At this time of year, people are pruning like crazy. Get that, strip those leaves off, throw them onto your wood chip pile, start doing um, a worm bin, food composting. Take that, that worm compost, mix that in with your organic matter materials. And then I would layer that thick onto the top of your pickaxe yep. situation. <laughs> yeah. And, and that will begin to, uh, start creating a little bit of topsoil, you know, season by season on top of your beds. And there's also some methods, uh, there's something called Hugel culture mm -hmm. yep. that comes, I think out of the, <clears throat> either Germany or the Nordic countries. And that is, that's kind of what I'm talking. That's a fast way of getting some Hugel culture culture going. There's people who um, grow in hay bales, of all things. And so I think it's bringing sort of deconstructed or breaking down organic matter already on to your hard pan situation, and then letting the microbiome and the plant roots and the organic matter have at it. So maybe stop the digging, at least for, for right now, stop the digging and layer 
all the layers. Lots, yeah. of, okay. lots of organic yeah. matter. And what Anne was just describing was essentially what she did to our yard in North Seattle, where we live, um, when we bought a house back in the late 1990s. And she started composting and mulching because we had that that uh, rock pick soil. Um, yeah. And she wanted a garden. So this is not going to um, – she went on an organic matter crusade to basically rebuild the fertility of the land. We write about that in The Hidden Half of Nature, and that was – the book that opened our eyes to the importance of microbial life and of carbon in the soil as the currency that feeds microbial life, which is why organic matter is so important. Um, and I was astounded as a geologist at how fast the soil started turning darker and darker and darker mm -hmm. and building up from literally zero topsoil to foot of topsoil at a pace that if you go look at the soil science textbooks, it'll tell you it doesn't happen that fast. So I mean, right. we can do that, it. Yeah. We can kind of beat nature at her own game in terms of building soil if we use, if we follow her own principles, and do it in, a, in an accelerated fashion. Uh, there's a real opportunity to bring life back to you know degraded yards or to farms and agricultural land globally. And soil organic matter is forty percent carbon. So every percent of organic matter that we add to the soil, we're adding about a half a percent of carbon. And where does that carbon come from? From the atmosphere through photosynthesis, nature invented an absolutely robust way to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground. Um, and that was photosynthesis combined with plants that push exudates into the soil to feed soil life. A lot of the carbon in the soil that gets built up are the dead bodies of those microbes. So there's this wonderful connection from you know how we treat the land to how we might be able to help draw down carbon from the atmosphere and the potential to adopt that on you know on gardens and farms around the world it add, adds up to very large numbers when you really uh, uh push it yeah yeah also ho also hopeful now i know yeah. we're we're coming up on time do you have time for one more question i know you, or do you have appointments you need to get sure, to sure. you good okay we yeah. can do one okay, more sure. perfect all right so this is like uh the million dollar question <laughs> so to play the devil's advocate a little bit um, what would you say to the people out there, usually on the wonderful internet, who like to say, well, that's a nice idea, but you can't feed the world without your roundups and your conventional agriculture methods. And uh, we have to have that to, in order to make sure everyone has enough to eat. What would your response be to that? Well, I, I would say, uh, well, read what your food ate, um, but also yep. read the, the previous book, Growing a Revolution, because we tackled that head on in that book by interviewing farmers around the world who had adopted the kind of techniques that we're talking about and who were outproducing their conventional neighbors. And, you know, they're growing more food with a lower environmental footprint and, you know, and better quality food, as we wrote about in What Your Food Ate. Um, but we've been concerned with that very issue for a long time. And it turns out that that's, you know, the conventional narrative of that we need fairly, uh, you know, methods that are destructive of the soil and soil health to be, to be able to feed everybody is simply not true. Um, yeah. Now, we, there's different ways to farm, different ways to do it. And it would require changing how we farm to basically be able to feed the world with these methods. But the whole point of adopting these methods is to change the way that we farm. Uh, so right. it's... Um, there's so there's um yeah i think there's some power there's a powerful ability to push back on that basic argument but that argument is deeply enshrined in people's thinking about conventional agriculture and in part of it it traces back to the problems that i wrote about in dirt the book that you brought up at the start of the, the show yeah. where if you have land that's already degraded 
then you really do need a lot of fertilizer and agrochemicals to maintain high yields. But what the question that you're asking um, basically begs for a response is, well, why don't we fix the soil? Because if you basically restore fertility to the soil, if you rebuild its fertility, you don't get any marginal utility from a lot of nitrogen fertilizers. Um, You don't, there's fewer insect pest problems on organic farms than conventional ones. Why? Because the conventional farms kill off all the insect predators that are the frontline defense against pests. So there's ways to think about how to actually manage those potential, um, uh, those issues. Um, And I think that the lesson of the dirt book was that we can't afford to ignore degradation of the soil and sort of continue on the path that we're on. And I think the big lesson of growing a revolution and, um, and what your food ate, are that there's ways to do it and not only better, fe- not only feed the world, but better nourish the world in the process. And I'll let yeah. Anne have the last word here. Well, and I think what, um, Jill, in that question, when folks put that question out there, they kind of leave off a really important part of it. And the question really should be, how are we going to feed the world for 10,000 more years? Yeah. Because agriculture, if you consider that it began about 10,000 years ago, which is, you know, I, there's not even any space between my fingers to signify how short a span of time that is in, hum, you know, human history, let alone human evolution. So they don't say, they don't ever say that or ask that part right. of the question. So I think the real question is, how do we continue to feed humanity for the next seven generations or the next, you know? So, because when we, you look at the methods that we're using now and the evidence that's in front of us after 10,000 years is not this way because right. something like, you know, a quarter to a third of all arable lands have soil that is so degraded that it's either considered we need to write that off or it's going to be extremely time consuming and expensive to try to get that soil that's that degraded back up on its feet. And so that that's one, you know, I, I always think we need to ask the full question and see the full picture and then we can bring truer answers to that question. And then the other thing that never gets brought up when that question's put out there is, Wow, all these high yields. I find it interesting that food waste uh, from field to table is something like, you know, estimates put that at pretty high amounts, you know, 40 yes. percent. Yes. So we're throwing away unreal. 40% yeah. of the food we grow. But what do we need these high yields for if we're throwing away the food itself? Yep. All of the diesel and fossil fuel inputs, the labor, we're throwing. Forty percent of that away. It sounds to me like we can manage to maybe pull back our yields, eat more of what we grow, and and restore the soil. To me, that's like, oh, that's the direction we go for agriculture to be sustainable well into the future. And in fact, what if there were practices that you know the very consequence of these practices are imbuing crops and animals with their full nutrient profile we're cleaning up air we're cleaning up water and people are feeling better like that's not you know i'm tired of horror shows I, yes. i'd like a few more you know some movies like this like wow look at these outcomes yes, yes. <laughs> i agree potential outcomes yeah. potential yes absolutely um 
it's just such a paradigm shift. That's hard for people. But I think if, if people are willing to rethink that, that's that's where the magic is. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's really the bottom line there is that we're at a point in our history where we have to rethink, fundamentally rethink our relationship with the soil. Um, and that's that's the big bottom line message of the books. Yeah. Well, that was a wonderful bow to put on this amazing episode. I feel like we could go on for hours, but I'm going to let you guys go. <laughs> That was so good. Can you remind everyone where they can find you? And I'm assuming your books are just going to be, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores, just the typical book places. Yep. Tip, typical yep. book places. Uh, we have a website that talks about the books. If you want to sort of get a little bit more description of them before thinking about them, it's dig2grow.com. That's D-I-G, the number two, G-R-O-W.com. Um, we're somewhat active sometimes on Twitter with at dig2grow as a handle. Um, but those are the places to basically get in contact with us, um, if anyone would like to, and yeah, the books are available pretty much anywhere books are sold, um, wherever you like to get them. Yeah. Excellent. And if anybody, you know, some people like, you know, can I get an autograph book for my mom or my dad or sister, brother, whatever, we can do that too. And contact is on the website. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so enlightening and I'm so excited for my audience to listen. I think they're going to be real excited. They're going to lose their minds. Yeah. So thank you for joining me. And <laughs> no, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Good. Well, thank you, Jill. Thanks for your work too on like getting the word out on this stuff. Cause it takes, you know, Dave and I always say, you know, without readers, there's no writers. And I sort of feel like without podcasters, there's, you know, it, it doesn't reach the audience that might fully yeah. appreciate it. So yeah. thanks for your work. Too. Well, it was easy to share. All righty. Thank you. Thank you for letting me nerd out about soil with you for an hour. It has been a privilege. <laughs>